I notice on the back side of your bulletin there's an empty space. It says sermon notes. Uh, so I assume that you take it seriously that when someone stands up here with an open Bible that you will probably write something down. So let me help you uh, organize your thoughts. Because I've organized my thoughts in such a way that you would understand them and learn from them and perhaps even multiply them. One thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text again. And then I'm going to make a brief introduction about the background and the context of this passage, which I feel is important. And then there are two major Points. The first has to do with prayer, and the second has to do with wisdom. And I would imagine anybody here this morning needs to grow along with me in prayer and in wisdom with regard to a gospel lifestyle. Let's look at the text again. And Shane, uh, I'm not going to read it because you didn't do a very good job reading it. But there's something about the Bible that bears repetition because we learn from something that is repeated. So I'm going to read again Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. <coughs> Excuse me. As in each one of Paul's shorter letters, he divides Colossians in half. The first two chapters have to do with more doctrinal and theological content, laying a foundation for where he's headed in chapters three and four, which are very practical in nature. Now, most of you are familiar with that pattern. But in Colossians, it's very clear that the second part of the book have to do with a series of injunctions. That is to say, Paul is not shy or timid about saying, don't do that, but do this. Don't do that, or even more strongly, don't you dare Think about it, because this is what will happen. These injunctions are not suggestions. They're commands in many cases. When we hear from um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, the do-nots, the commandments, they're not, as we've heard, suggestions. Now, this city, represented by the title of this letter, is Colossae. It is a city where Paul had never visited. He did not plant that church. I think he probably know, knew those who did. 
So the letter then takes on another perspective. Paul writing to somebody or a group of people whom he did not know. He had to be careful, however, that he did not misunderstand whatever he knew about this church so he wouldn't offend them unnecessarily. And this is why he starts in the beginning talking not about himself but about Jesus. The center point is Jesus. First two chapters are all about Jesus. I'm reminded of the third grade teacher who asked her children to draw pictures at their desks. Took 20 minutes and they drew away and then after they were finished then she invited them to come up in front show their pictures to the rest of the class. And the class was asked to identify the pictures. And there were clouds and there were houses and there were mountains and there were birds and trees and all the rest of it. And finally, little Billy came up and he held his picture up and nobody could guess what Billy had drawn. So the teacher, <coughs> Billy, what is that? And he said, that's a picture of God. And she said, but Billy, no one knows what God looks like. And Billy said, now they do. <laughs> this is the function of Jesus in world history. People who don't know God and have obviously even Moses never seen him need only to look to Jesus. And this is where Paul spends the first half of this letter. He begins to talk to people about Jesus. And he covers, by the way, a lot of territory. For instance, he speaks to the church or churches, families, parents, children, masters and slaves, or as we would understand it, employers and employees. Now, this letter begins with prayer and ends with prayer. He prays for the Colossians, and then he asks them to pray for him. Don't be uh, distracted by Paul's, and pray for us. Pray for our needs, so that we may. Paul is reading really here talking about what we would call an editorial we. He's really saying, because Timothy's name is the only one mentioned at the beginning of this letter, and perhaps Timothy was a good preacher by this time, but remember now, this letter was one of several that Paul wrote from prison. Everything he writes in here needs to be understood that he could very well have written a letter complaining about the food as we often do. Oh, no, I'm sure that there are exceptions here, people who just like eating squid. So you can go right out and get some down, down at the beach. Or sushi, for goodness sakes. Or you name it, and you're happy with it. Myself, not so much. So, Paul asks... For prayer for himself. And I can just tell you that um, I have a few key people praying for me this morning. Peggy told me 
this morning. She said, I couldn't sleep last night, but I spent the night praying for you. I had an email from a couple friends in Coleman who said, remember, John, tomorrow when you get up there, I'm going to be praying for you because I'm in church and you're supposed to pray in church, so I'll pray for you rather than something else or somebody else. And then I have a fellow, a former student in Canada who's a pastor up there, and he emailed me along with a friend in Coleman who works for a seed company. He said, don't be afraid to stand up in front of people you don't know because I'm going to be praying. You're covered. You're covered. This is what Paul is talking about here. Covering people with prayer specifically according to their needs. I love what you said, Paul, about this idea of prayer requests for the year and then coming back to find out. And, you know, the church is in error in one area, at least at least the church we attend, and that is we hear a lot about prayer requests, intercessory prayer, but oftentimes we don't hear about the answers to those prayers. I think we're afraid to answer prayers that are not answered in the ways in which we prayed for them. You know, if we prayed that someone get good grades, and they didn't, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about that then. So don't pray for grades anymore. I told the students the other day that uh, we hear a lot about prayer in the schools or no prayer in the schools. And I said, I saw a bumper sticker that said, as long as there are exams, there will be prayer in the schools. I can assure you. Paul then greets these people warmly and encouragingly. Makes these injunctions go down a little more easily. But now I want to get to the what I would call the big idea in this passage. And here it is, as concisely as I can make it. How does a rank-and-file Christ follower communicate the biblical gospel in a winsome and persuasive manner? That is the question in this passage, more than any other, even any other passage that Paul wrote. It's helping people, not who are ordained, not people who've been to Bible college, not people who've been to seminary, not people who have had formal training, people who, probably most of whom are here today, who have not had years of formal training, and yet... They know, and we know, that the Great Commission stands as it is written to each of us and not to a group of 11 Christ followers. So, listen to the words on this topic as we've heard them repeated already. First, then, Paul says, cultivate, develop, form, a life of prayer. Don't let your prayer life be limited to ten minutes a day or a prayer meeting or um, for crises that may arise. Pray, as Paul says in Philippians, without ceasing. 
But when you pray without ceasing, be thankful. And that's, of course, what Paul says right here. Be watchful. Be alert. Pray smartly, wisely, according to God's will. And, of course, we don't find God's will hanging on posters down at the beach. We find God's will mostly, if not entirely, right here. And God delights when we desire to learn what his will is and how to pray. But Paul requests prayer for himself, and I want you to look very carefully, because I think Paul wrote this letter, and the Holy Spirit inspired this letter to help us learn how to pray about sharing the gospel with unbelievers, with outsiders. First of all, Paul says, pray for me that God would open a door for the mystery of the gospel. Now here, mystery does not mean something that is out there someplace and nobody knows the answer until the end of time. Mystery, whether it refers to the church or to marriage or to the gospel itself, really means something that God chooses to make clear and reveal it to people who really want to know what the nature of this gospel is all about. Open doors for the mystery of the gospel. Second of all, it's very clear here that Paul says, I am in chains. That is, he's in prison, he's in jail, and he's not there because he's been stealing things at Walmart. He's there because he's been faithful to speak about Jesus out loud in the daylight. I'm reminded of the Philippians' reference to Paul's saying that his enemies, believers, I believe, in Philippians chapter 1, were happy that Paul was now in prison because they could then talk about Jesus in the ways that they thought was correct and accurate, and probably Paul wouldn't condone. So Paul writes and says, ha, the joke is on them. You know what's good about all this, Paul said, is I'm so delighted that I'm in here because now the gospel is going to go out in more and different and maybe even better ways then I can do it. You see, the gospel is not limited to one denomination, to one parachurch organization, to one mission organization. The gospel finds its way into the minds, hearts, and through the lips of people who love him. Sometimes we don't think we're very good at speaking. Well, good for you. You have good company. Just look at the twelve or... The 11, we don't know much about Matthias, but we do know something about six of those guys. And I've said about Peter very often, I'm going to have to, when I get to heaven, apologize to him. I've had altogether too much fun at his expense down here on earth. But I want to talk to Peter because he represents the alter ego of many of us. He speaks before he thinks often. He embarrasses people when he opens his mouth. 
Peter, shut up. And James and John, you know, they were doing things. They had an evangelistic strategy that I'm not sure Paul would have condoned. They were headed to Samaria. And Jesus said, I want you to go ahead of me and get things ready for me to go on up there. Samaritans and Jews, you know, didn't like each other very well. So they went up there and they said, Jesus, we've got a new strategy and here's what it is. We're going to call down fire from heaven and burn all those Samaritans up. Can you imagine Jesus saying, gosh, I never thought about that. (laughs) It's amazing we could end this whole hostility by getting rid of the Samaritans or sending the Samaritans back to their home country. A costly gospel. Clarity in speaking the gospel. Now, here's where I can speak to all of you. Staff included. People who have Bible training included. And here it is. When you pray that you will be effective in gospel presentation, here are five words that I want you to notice. Number one, presentation. You must speak. Now, I'm not saying here that this is the only way to evangelize. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Number one, when you present the gospel, it's a spoken word that people can understand. Second of all, an explanation when the person you're speaking with has some questions, and so you explain it. Then thirdly, the third word is clarification. You now attempt to say, all right, uh, in other words, this is what I meant to say. Maybe I didn't make it clear, so let me clarify it by this. Then the fourth is illustration. Some of the best illustrations come right out of the Bible. And not just out of the New Testament either, but out of the Old Testament as well. The fifth word has to do with invitation, and that is the gospel is not a credible gospel unless it has something to act upon, an invitation to join with the church worldwide. So, this is all about prayer. Now, I want you to look at the text here because it would be very easy to make this comment. Verses 1 through 3, excuse me, 2 through 4, make a lot of sense together. But 5, perhaps, 5 and 6 should be in a separate paragraph because it doesn't make sense. Now, let your conversation. Now, hold on, Paul. We're talking about prayer. What does this mission about conversation have to do with the whole thing? Well, let's not miss the point here. The point here is that Paul is saying many of us have the opportunity to be witnesses, not initially or exclusively, verbally, orally, but with our lives. The way we live, conversationally, The way we talk, our language. I have a next door neighbor. I'll call him Phil. 
I won't tell you anything more about him, and that is that Phil's language is not edifying. But Phil doesn't know it. He just uses this, these words. I've heard before. I'm not scandalized by them. I wish you wouldn't talk that way. He talks, by the way, differently with me than he talks to Peggy. He will say things like, oh, pardon my French. Poor French get blamed for a lot of stuff. <laughs> but you see, people listen to us when we're speaking, when we don't realize how we're speaking. We need to be careful with our behavior, Paul says, toward outsiders. Oh, my, what an offensive word that is. Until you understand from the Gospels that Jesus had a title, and it was called Jesus the Friend of Sinners. And it wasn't said in a complimentary way. He hangs out with those people. And those people were tax collectors and sinners, people who on the other side of the tracks didn't have much of this world's goods, but they just loved being around Jesus. They loved to hear him. And so the religious people of the day, the leaders of the day, found it all too easy to criticize for Jesus for doing all this. I don't know if this strikes a chord with you, but let me see if I can open it up just briefly and say that Paul here was not just talking about unbelievers. He was talking about people who are coming from a different cultural experience, a different ethnic background, a different linguistic, racial, and national background. Those are the people about whom and for whom we need to watch our language so that it's clear to them, not offensive to them, or that we treat them less, with less dignity than they need to be treated. And we're to look for open doors, we're to pray, and let me finally said, our conversation is to be salty. Now, people who live around the beach know all about salt. You have salt in your hot dogs, you know, salt in your mouth after you've been in the water, all this kind of thing. Paul's talking about, this is an illustration, salt is meant, yes, to preserve. It's also meant to bring out a taste, a persuasive taste of the gospel, for instance. But it's also meant in the sense that, as Paul says here, this conversation that we have is to be seasoned with the salt of grace. That is, with compassion, with understanding, with sensitivity. With boldness, with courage, and by listening. I have a friend who wrote a book, and this is the title of it. How shall they hear unless we listen? That's a little twist on Romans 10, isn't it? How shall they hear unless we listen? Is this a dialogue of dumb or deaf people? No, it's that evangelists, the good ones, listen. Someone said, two ears, one mouth, figure it out, do the math. Evangelism was meant 
to be a dialogue, not a monologue. Finally, and here's my final illustration. Um, while living in Atlanta several years ago, I was given the privilege of being the chaplain for the Atlanta Falcons. Had players in my home, had their spouses and their friends home, taught the Bible. One linebacker in particular became a good friend. I shared the gospel with him many times, and he was polite, thoughtful, not for him, not time, not ready. Okay, fine. They were going out. The Falcons were going out to L.A. playing the Rams out there before the Rams moved to St. Louis. And I said, I want you to go to the chapel meeting out there. I know a good friend is speaking at chapel. Would you go? Greg said, yes, I'll go. So I went to the chapel, and he entrusted, after the meeting, he entrusted his life to Christ as a result of that. And I, I was not feeling crushed because he didn't pray with me. I was excited that he prayed in such a way as to, to walk with Christ intentionally the rest of his life. Well, uh, the Rams beat the Falcons. In those days, that was very common. And um, he, after the game, they were not happy, so he misbehaved on the plane on the way home, and players had to help him off the plane, help him home, and his wife was not happy, etc. You can fill in the blanks on this one. So uh, three weeks later, they played the Raiders in Atlanta. They beat the Raiders like a drum, and then there was a party in the stadium club afterwards. He went to the stadium club for the party, and um, throughout the evening, he was drinking one seven-up after another, one seven-up after another, one seven-up after another. And one of his teammates come up to him and said, Greg, what's the matter with you? Why are you drinking all those seven-ups? And Greg hadn't figured out his uh, theology of clarity of the gospel yet. <laughs> so he said, I like them. Okay, that went. So about midnight or some thereafter, the same teammate came up to him afterwards, and he said, he put his finger into his chest, and he said, I don't know what it is, Greg, but I want it. Okay, after the party, at about 1 or 2 in the morning, I get a phone call. And it's Greg on the phone, and he said, I remember you telling me that you used to take guys down to Marriott in Atlanta and lead them to Christ. I've got one of those appointments tomorrow. Three weeks, he's been walking with Christ, and he's got an appointment to lead somebody else to Christ, one of his teammates, number 52. So he said, John, at 2 o'clock in the morning, tell me everything you know about Jesus. <laughs> and I think at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I could have done that in about 10 minutes, you know. But two hours later, I, I really had told him a, a lot, I think. I hope I helped him. And he said, oh, by the way, there are a couple of other things that I have. And I answered some of his questions. And so I said, now, here's the deal, Greg. I want you to call me tomorrow night. After your appointment, tell me how it went, because I'm going to pray all day Monday. So I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I got the phone call from Greg. And Greg said, uh, John, this, you cannot believe it. And I said, okay, I will not believe it until you tell me about it. 
he said, we went down there and he said, oh, I remembered one thing you said. And that is you tried to take a Bible with you on these appointments. And during the appointment in the uh, Marriott or wherever, you would take this Bible and slip it up on the table. So he said, I looked all over the house for a Bible. I couldn't find it. looking at cupboards. And finally, he said, up in the closet, I found my grandmother's family Bible. Now, family Bibles are about this size. And they're white out. They've got ribbons hanging out all over the place. You open, and they've got family trees, and they've got all kinds of things going. And I'm thinking, Greg, you did not take that to the Marriott with you. He said, oh, I did. <laughs> then I'm thinking, follow-up question, how did you slip this Bible up on the table? Did you ask the server to just clear off the table so it would fit up there? So here he is, these two linebackers at the downtown Marriott with this family Bible spread out. And I'm just, I, I think I lost all the saliva in my mouth waiting for the answer to this. And so he told me uh, that he... It was a great lunch and so on. I said, so what did you do with the Bible on the table? And he said, I started reading it to him. And I said, in my mind, Greg, tell me. No. So I said, where did you start? He said, at the beginning. (laughs) Then my question was, how far did you get? And he said, I've I've read for a while. And he said, finally, Jack said to me, Greg, I want to do it. And Greg said, you want to do what? He said, I want to be just like you. The gospel. The gospel. doesn't fit all of the ideas maybe that we've heard, but that teammate came genuinely to trust in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. Pray for us and be careful how you speak and how you listen. Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about your sacrifice that made it possible for us to know you personally, deeply, significantly, and as we come to this table, we are so thankful and humbled that you would invite us to share this meal with you and with each other to nourish our hearts so that we might be Christ followers of significance. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.